Previously on Not a Hoax, Not a Dream. I'm Ben Rathbone, recording from The Phantom Zone. Ben! Hey, Ben! Cameron, is that you? Ben, what are you doing here? I, I was sent here by Superman. What are, you, what are you doing here? Watch out for Zod! Do what? Watch out for Zod! Watch out for who? Zod! Watch out for Zod! I couldn't really make him out. Now, how do we get out of here? That is a great question. I've been waiting for some kind of trial. I don't know how the Phantom Zone works. Oh, wait, is that a portal opening? Yeah, looks like it. Maybe we should go through. Yeah, now's our chance. Let's go. Kneel before me, maggot. I have come for all of your Mars bars. Ah, crap. It's Zod. Uh, Shit, we gotta get out of here. Yeah, let's go, now. Welcome, welcome to Not a Hoax, Not a Dream, the podcast about comic book characters who just don't quit. You can try to write them off, but they'll just get written back in. You can try to kill them, but they'll just get better. I'm your host, Ben Rathbone, and I'm recording from a lawn somewhere. Hey, Ben! Ben! Cameron, is that you? What what happened? The last time I saw you, you, like, we were sucked through a portal. I haven't seen you since. I just fell out of it and kind of pounded myself on the ground, man. Getting a portal pounding is not fun. Listen, I, I think I saw a robot pop up out of the ground. Just duck behind this bush for a minute. Uh, okay, 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 okay. What, what, what kind of robot? I don't know. It's just this big laser beam looking arm thing just popped up out of the ground, then popped back in. What did... Where are we? Did you get a read on the address at all? I have no idea where we are. Check the mailbox. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna sneak over. All right, it looks like it says 1407 Gray Malkin Lane, Salem Center? Westchester? We're in Westchester? God damn it! Is that in New York? Like New York State? Yeah, uh, we're so far from home. You know, something about that address does seem familiar now that I think about it. What is it, a famous robot factory or something? Uh, I don't think that's quite it. Uh, oh, well. Uh, while you're here, do you want to record another podcast? Here? We're in Westchester. Uh, you know, you can't always pick your environment. Uh, all right, I guess, but uh, stay behind the bushes. I don't want that thing spotting us. All right, fair enough, fair enough. Welcome. This is Stanley of Marvel Comics warning you to look around you, your classmates, your friends. You never know which one of them may be a mutant, a person born with strange and wondrous powers. Now, some mutants, like the X-Men, use their special gifts for good, but then there are the terrorist mutants who plan to destroy the human race. Mutants. I hate them. When it comes to history, primary sources are invaluable. So what better artifact to turn to for the origin of the X-Men than Volume 1 of the Creator's Choice X-Men VHS Collection, released by Pizza Hut in 1993. This videotape contained the first two episodes of the 90s X-Men animated series, where 90s kids everywhere were introduced to a team of colorfully costumed heroes, beset by giant robots funded by a discriminatory government. The VHS also included a roundtable discussion at the beginning, 
featuring X-Men co-creator Stan Lee, with then-current X-writers Fabian Nicieza and Scott Lobdell, and then-current X-editor Bob Harris. The conversation starts out with Nicieza asking Lee how the X-Men came about. Stan basically says, because it was easy. We have been creating comics. There was Spider-Man, there was the Hulk, a few others. And, and it's very difficult to figure out how a superhero becomes a superhero. You can't keep having characters bitten by a radioactive spider or hit by a, a gamma ray or zapped by cosmic rays. Then it occurred to me there are such things as mutants. Well, if you could say, and we have, a, I think, three of them right here. <laughs> if you could say that somebody is just a mutant, he's just born that way, that's a, a logical explanation, an easy explanation, and I can forget about radioactivity. As a kid, you kind of just take Stan's word as gospel, and there's many adult Marvel fans now where that's still the case. While I truly believe the man to have been a visionary creator, a talented collaborator, and a brilliant storyteller, he was also always a showman, a weaver of tales and interviews just as much as on the page. Still, I believe him on this one. When you're churning out colorful, super-powered characters, it makes sense to come up with a catch-all reason. I'm more skeptical when he'd say in other interviews that the X-Men were a metaphor for the civil rights movement, because, well, reading these early stories, it just doesn't track. If it is a metaphor, it hasn't aged well. But one thing him and Jack Kirby did do, by making the origin of the hero's powers something they were born with instead of something they acquired, they opened up the door for all kinds of metaphors that future writers would make, and interpretations readers would insert onto the page. Any kid who felt different could look at the X-Men and see heroes that were also born different, and could also be misunderstood and discriminated against for something they didn't choose. It all started in 1963, in... The X-Men. Number one. Written by Stan Lee, drawn by Jack Kirby, inked by Paul Reinman, and lettered by S. Rosen. Somewhere in New York's Westchester County, there is an exclusive private school unlike any other in the state, or the country, or the world. Nearly 60 years later, the nature of the school is fairly common knowledge, but here, now, in 1963, we're seeing it for the first time. We don't see the entire school grounds, not yet. Instead, our view is isolated to a solitary man on the other side of a window, sitting motionless in a bare room. His bald head accentuates the stark lines of his face, indicating that this is a man of serious thoughts. We're not left to wonder about this for long, however, as his thoughts leap out of his head, onto the page, and it soon becomes clear that we're not the only one privy to them. When this man thinks, hard enough, anyone can hear him. Attention, X-Men! This is Professor Xavier calling! Repeat, this is Professor X calling. You are ordered to appear at once. Class is now in session. Tardiness will be punished. The X-Men don't take long to enter. Each of them wears a yellow and blue costume. One wears a strange visor on his head. One can fly with wings. One is covered in snow. And one jumps in from the window barefoot. They announce their names as they arrive. Cyclops, the Angel, Iceman, and the Beast. Cyclops reclines the professor's chair while Angel adjusts the blanket covering Xavier's legs. Clearly these two are competing to be the teacher's pet. Meanwhile, Iceman reveals himself as the class clown by frosting over Beast's arm. Beast is about to show Iceman what's what, but Angel reminds him that there's no fighting during class, and the professor tells Cyclops to prepare the training machine for Beast. Beast has exactly a second to grab a taut wire with his feet and spin himself around it. Then he has exactly three seconds to release himself from the wire and execute Maneuver G. 
He nails it, but has a little bit more trouble with the next part, where he has to balance on top of a rod with one finger. But as the rod sways downward, he's able to land on his feet. Angel is up next. Through aerial acrobatics, the winged dude is able to dodge a spurt of fire, a giant vice thing, and a spinning death trap fan thing. Just so he doesn't get too cocky though, Professor X threw in a sound concussion there at the end to fuck him up. Angel doesn't fall, however, and the Professor congratulates him on mastering the hovering maneuver. Iceman, the youngest of the group, isn't put through as rigorous of a test. He's just given five minutes of free play, which he isn't happy about, so he dresses up like a snowman to make fun of the whole thing. But the Professor telepathically tells Beast to throw a bowling ball at his young teammate, because fuck Iceman, I guess. Beast hurls the ball, and luckily Iceman is fast enough to form a slope that redirects the ball back at Beast, who catches it. Alright, fine, you pass the test, Iceman. Finally, Cyclops' test, communicated via thought directly to him, is to pretend Beast and Iceman are his enemies and take them out of action. He adjusts the side of the strange visor covering his eyes, and a ray of energy fires out from his gaze, knocking Beast into a wall. Iceman tries to shield against the next optic blast, but Cyclops opens his visor wider and takes him out too. Angel enters the fray, and it becomes a free-for-all. After a calculated period of time, Professor X tells them to knock it off, there's a new student coming. And not just any new student too, but an attractive lady. Her cab's pulling up now, actually. Go check her out, boys! They all rush to the window to do so. Well, at least three of them do. In the best unintentional foreshadowing of all time, Iceman is not interested. The red-haired young woman enters the school tentatively. It's more a mansion, really, but she finds herself to Xavier soon enough, who is waiting for her in his wheelchair. She has questions. Why was she asked to come to this mysterious school, instructed to tell no one but her parents, and told nothing about the curriculum? The professor explains, telling her she is a mutant. What's a mutant? It's someone who possesses an extra power. The other students here are mutants too, and that's why they're the X-Men. The X is for extra. Like, extra power. You know, feel free to forget that reasoning going forward. He introduces the newcomer to the other students, and we learn their names. The Beast is Hank McCoy. Iceman is Bobby Drake. Cyclops is Slim Summers. And Angel is Warren Worthington III. Slim would later be renamed Scott, or Slim is his nickname, or something, I, I don't know. The new girl is Jean Grey, and her codename is to be Marvel Girl. Marvel Girl demonstrates her power by pulling up a chair for herself and flipping through the pages of a floating book, all with only the power of her mind. Then, when Hank tries to get a bit too fresh, Jean gives a more intense demonstration and lays him out flat. I hope I wasn't too rough on the poor dear. Not at all, Jean. We have to make our training as rough as possible to prepare ourselves for our mission in the outside world. Oh, right, that. The mission. Uh, what is that exactly? Well, that's simple. There's a whole bunch of mutants out there in the world, and we can safely and easily categorize them all into good mutants and evil mutants. We are the good mutants, and we have to stop the evil mutants. Speaking of these so-called evil mutants, the comic takes us to the secret laboratory of a scarlet and purple-cladded figure named Magneto. We know his name is Magneto because the cover of the comic told us the X-Men would be fighting Magneto, Earth's most powerful supervillain. So, this is him. Magneto wants to make Homo sapiens bow to mutants, which he calls Homo superior. His first show of power is to fuck up a rocket test at military base Cape Citadel. Pure magnetic energy surges out from his body, and he knocks the missile off course. His next move is to magnetically control various weapons across the base and turn them against the soldiers. As alarms are sounded and Condition Red is announced, Magneto delivers his ultimatum by spelling out words in the sky, formed from magnetized dust particles. Surrender the base or I'll take it by force, 
Sincerely, Magneto. Okay, it doesn't say sincerely, but Magneto does take the time to spell out his signature in a stylish, cursive script. When the leaders do not comply, Magneto follows through on his threat. He disarms soldiers of weapons, flings attackers away from him, and traps the general and his guard behind a shield of magnetic energy. It doesn't take long for Professor X to learn of the crisis. He gathers his students together and tells them it's showtime. The first of the evil mutants has appeared. A mysterious, powerful mutant that I have certainly never met before and know nothing about. This is my first time hearing about this guy, believe me. Never met a mutant with magnetic powers before in my life. What are you talking about? Anyway, go get him. The X-Men suit up, head to the airport, and are flown to Cape Citadel in the Professor's thought-controlled private jet. They arrive at the base as the military force assembled outside attempts to break through the magnetic force field blocking their path. Cyclops asks the officers in charge to give the X-Men a shot, and they say, sure, you've got 15 minutes. While the field initially resists Slim's optic blast, once the X-Man switches to maximum power, he's able to do what the U.S. military's heavy artillery cannot, and breaks through. Magneto, now in the heart of the base's missile control center, is knocked over by the feedback of his collapsed shield. He sees the invading quintet on a monitor, and unleashes five heat-detecting hunter missiles to dispatch with them. Angel intercepts them, and dodges them long enough for Iceman to freeze and deactivate four of them, and for Beast and Marvel Girl to team up on the last one sending it to explode harmlessly out to sea. Magneto decides he's going to have to get his hands dirty. He nearly crushes Angel with a clutter of metal scraps and parts, until Cyclops clears it from his friend with a well-placed optic blast. Magneto next attempts to sneak up on the X-Men, and roll a tank of rocket fuel at the teens. He thinks he succeeded in destroying his foes when the tank explodes. But it turns out Cyclops was able to blast a tunnel into the ground for the team to hide in, safe from the explosion. Magneto decides that he doesn't like how the odds have turned against him, and takes to the air, flying through means of magnetic repulsion. He erects another force field behind him to shield his escape, and by the time the X-Men are able to break through, their newfound nemesis has escaped. The X-Men return to the General, telling him his base is once again his, and with time to spare, not yet having surpassed their 15 minutes. The General exclaims this to be uncanny, and after shaking hands with Cyclops, the X-Men and U.S. military complex become fast friends, a status quo I'm sure that will never change. His students' first field mission and astounding success, Professor X telepathically congratulates the X-Men. Well done, students! You have justified all our long hours of training, all our sacrifices, all our dreams, and now, return to me, my X-Men. The narration then ends the comic. You have just finished the newest, most unusual tale in the annals of modern magazines. But the best is yet to come. For fantasy at its greatest, don't miss issue number two of X-Men, the strangest superheroes of all. So what's this episode about? This is about Professor X, otherwise known as Charles Xavier. He's sort of the mastermind behind the whole team, so... If I'm remembering right in that first issue, he's sort of introducing each member of the team through their abilities in a training session. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're they're highlighting each of their abilities in turn. But there's also the dialogue in each box from Professor X, transmitting his thoughts on their mind, just saying, here's what you need to work on, here's what you need to expect in battle, here's the way to use your powers in a unique way. And 
that really establishes his character, I think, throughout the entire stretch of panels. It was pretty unique. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of his deal. It's kind of a weird first few pages because you don't really know what they're training for. And then eventually he introduces the the, the newest X-Men, who is a woman, uh, Jean Grey, Marvel girl. And then you finally find out that they're training to fight evil mutants. They're they're the good mutants, and then they have to fight the evil mutants. All this so. time, they thought they were joining a circus, but no! Yeah, <laughs> it would have been a pretty fun circus, but first they got to take care of all those evil mutants. That's that's kind of Professor X's worldview. There's, there's good mutants and evil mutants. It's pretty stark in the first issue that he is on the side of objective morality, I think. Basically, Magneto shows up in this issue, and, and he, as far as we know, as far as what Professor X is saying right now, this is the first evil mutant that he's encountered, and Magneto tries to take over this military base in Cape Citadel. And Oh, he doesn't just try. He does. He takes over the whole thing. He kicks them all out. He flies the missiles wherever he wants. He goes on a little joyride with a helicopter at one point, I think. He's in control. Yeah, and they can't stop him. Any of the soldiers, they can't, they can't stop him. Yeah, Magneto has one of these powers that's very appealing to, like, the little kid in you when you're like, out there in the playground pretending you have powers. He has a force field, and as you know, that is the ultimate power when you're a kid. If you have a force field, no, no other kid can do anything against you. You can't touch me. Yeah, you, you just, you can't do anything to a force field. They can just keep saying they have a force field. I actually really like his skywriting ability. I think that was funny. The surrender, the base, or all take it by force. Signed Magneto. It's, you know, very Wicked Witch of the West kind of camp to it but yeah you know what i really liked about that the fact that he he actually signed magneto in cursive if you look at that panel yeah so surrender the base or i'll take it by force is all just in just regular font and then but then his his name is actually signed in cursive in like a slant to it it looks like you'd put it on paper it the guy's got flair. He, he does. He, he's got style i i love the fact that the, the cover of the issue actually announces him as Earth's most powerful supervillain, which is, you know, pretty cool. That's a bold claim, but knowing what he can do with force fields, I mean... Yeah, right out the gate. He's Earth's most powerful supervillain. And this is the team that Xavier brings together to, to fight somebody like that, so... But they're just teenagers, too. They're kids. They are. You got, you got Slim Summers. First of all, Slim Summers, that's what his name was in the first issue. I, cracked me up. And then Bobby's only 16, so these are novices, and he's sending them after the world's most dangerous mutant. First one they find. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things where the more you think about it, the more Xavier doesn't really seem like a good dude, necessarily. (laughs) He's not a good guardian. I wouldn't trust him with my kids. How can I use them for war? Yeah, he's gathering all these teenagers together and just putting them into this paramilitary force that that he has sole ownership over. No, like no oversight, just in his mansion. He's pretending it's a school, so there's no, there's literally no oversight. Probably getting some good government kickbacks, you know, tax breaks, some, some Title IV stuff for uh, for pretending to be the school. Sometime later. Yeah, because the Five Man Band is so. There's the lead singer who is basically the main character and leader of the team so that would be cyclops then you have the guitarist which is kind of the rival to the lead singer that would be that would be angel because they're kind of like rivals 
You see in the first few pages that they're competing for Xavier's... The approval. They're both looking for approval, but I think for different reasons. Yeah, that's definitely, because we'll find out later about their backgrounds. But yeah, definitely they have different motivations. Then you have the, the drummer and the keyboardist. The drummer is just there to have fun. So he's usually the comic relief. He's the one that gets along with people, but, you know maybe as a goofball and people given a hard time because he's not serious enough. So that's, that's Iceman, right? And then the keyboardist is usually the, the tech guy. He's the guy who's, and, and right now, I guess in this first issue, you don't have that, but eventually Beast will be that, right? He'll be the intelligent one who is, is a scientist to some degree and speaks eloquently. So he would be the keyboardist. So, and then there's the girl that's actually a member of the five-man band trope. And so that's that's obviously Marvel Girl. So there you go. She what what instrument does she play? Doesn't matter. She's the girl. She's the girl. Yeah, oh, that's the girl. terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that's the trope. That's why it's a you know it can be yeah it's not it's not necessarily a good trope for sure. She she's actually pretty cool in this first issue though. She's very formidable. I feel like in this issue. Oh, Jean Grey definitely has her wits about her, and she's not taking no no gum from these gentlemen yeah because beef starts to get really inappropriate with her right and and, and she just kind of uses her powers to lay him out flat he has no which, manners yeah which is kind of neat it's really kind of stark how how different beast is in this first issue than than what he is now and not even just in appearance but like just the way he talks his manners and everything he went through uh, quite a few changes over the years to develop him into what we know now as the big intellectual blue guy but I think initially, you're right, he was just sort of used as a thug. Yeah, he's just kind of a thug, and he, and he mostly talks like a thug, too. He doesn't get a whole lot of lines, and he's just kind of... The ones he does get mostly match with the stereotypes of his appearance, right? Hmm. Whereas whereas I think Stan Lee eventually thought it would be fun to just make his dialogue be at odds with his appearance, and he started giving him the most eloquent lines and... And just scripting him to be this very like intelligent, well-spoken guy, which is, which is fun, and that eventually led to the the character we know now. Well, it's a pretty tame first issue. I mean, the group assembles, they go and fight the big bad. Everybody walks away from the fight. Even you know the big bad runs to his corner. The good guys go to their corner, and we live to see issue two. You know, it gets the job done. Yep. Yeah, definitely. I'm grateful to have the chance to say goodbye. I am proud. Proud of you all. My X-Men. It isn't long before Magneto returns, and this time he's collected a group of mutants to rival Professor X's team of X-Men. For years, Charles and his X-Men fight to stop the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants from their plans to conquer the world. They battle other rogue mutants as well, such as the Vanisher, Unus the Untouchable, the Blob, Mimic, and Banshee. Each of the mutants have unique powers to challenge the X-Men. One mutant named Changeling can even alter his biological makeup and outward appearance at will, to essentially look like an exact copy of any other humanoid. He'll be important later on. They also fight all other crazy kinds of shit, whether it be the mutant hunting robots named the Sentinels, space aliens like Lucifer, who is responsible for the injury that cost Xavier his legs, or the Juggernaut, a mystically powered strongman who happens to be Xavier's stepbrother. 
So when a towering mutated muscle man starts terrorizing the New York subways, it seems like business as usual. How could the X-Men have realized that this would be their most emotionally taxing adventure yet? Out in the real world, Marvel Comics throughout the 60s has become a force to be reckoned with, culturally redefining superhero comics and dominating the market. But X-Men, believe it or not, is not one of their best-selling titles. Most don't consider it to be Lee and Kirby's best work, and when that collaboration ended after 19 issues, the change-up didn't help the book all that much initially. The characters change costumes, moving away from the blue and yellow uniforms, but their team dynamic and mission has more or less stayed the same. Perhaps it was time to rattle the status quo. This leads us to... The X-Men, number 42, 42. featuring Featuring. the death death of Professor Professor X. X. Not a hoax, not a a dream, not Not an imaginary imaginary tale. tale. This This is for real. real. By scripter Roy Thomas and artist Don Heck. Inked by George Tusca and lettered by Sam Rosen. Angel's mad. He and Iceman have just arrived to bring Professor X and Marvel Girl back to the strange underground complex they just came from home of the terrible monster, grotesque, the subhuman. Cyclops and Beast remain in the subterranean lair, and could encounter the creature at any time. But guess what? Jean doesn't want to go. Why? No explanation is given. Then, Professor X shows up and tells them he's not going to go either, and furthermore, orders Angel and Iceman to stay in the room until he says they can leave. Still, no explanation is given. Xavier leaves, apparently bored of the conversation, and tells Jean to stop them if they try to go. Meanwhile, somewhere beneath New York City's subway, Grotesque the Subhuman has found Beast and Cyclops, and isn't exactly welcoming. Once again you have dared to challenge Grotesque, the Subhuman? Did you truly believe you were a match for me? Beast attempts to meet Grotesque blow for blow, but even his formidable physicality pales in comparison to the Subhuman. Grotesque next trades attacks with Cyclops. He dodges an optic blast and hurls an ancient machine at the X-Man. Slim dodges it and fires another optic blast, this one aimed at the machinery behind the subhuman. The resulting explosion barely phases Grotesque. The monster is about to resume his assault when he feels a strange tremor underneath him, a tremor he's felt in his lair before, in the previous issue. Grotesque sees a vision of a mysterious human operating a device to cause the tremors, the silhouette of which looks just a little bit familiar. The subhuman throws a pellet to the ground, which ignites into a cloud of what appears to be smoke. Beast finds out it's not smoke when he tries to jump through it and smashes into what feels like solid stone. The two X-Men are left alone to wonder why their foe escaped when he was winning the fight. We learn Grotesque's motivations in the next panel when he narrates his backstory aloud while traversing the ancient catacombs he calls home. Turns out there was a whole civilization of people deep within the Earth that was destroyed as the result of underground nuclear weapons testing. Radiation sickness killed off all of Grotesque's people, with the exception of himself, who instead mutated into the hulking monster he is today. He's sworn revenge against the entirety of planet Earth, and will see it obliterated. Back at the Xavier Mansion, Cyclops and Beast have returned. Cyclops wants to talk to the Professor, but Jean tells him he can't. Cyclops isn't happy about this, but Jean doubles down, and while she still doesn't offer any explanation for why the Professor doesn't want to interact with any of his students, she does use her telekinesis to push Cyclops and the rest of the X-Men away. Meanwhile, Grotesque has tracked the strange tremors back to their source. He rips through the wall with a loud crack and sees a man operating the control panel of some technological marvel. That man is none other than Professor X himself. Turns out that Charles learned about Grotesque and his plot to destroy the planet and devised a plan to defeat the subhuman himself without involving any of his students and risking their lives. His plan was to break into... 
some place and operate a machine called an oscillatron, which he used to create the tremors Grotesque felt underground. Xavier intended to use the tremors to lure the subhuman to him, which, as we saw, worked. It all kind of falls apart from there, though. First of all, and this is a huge fucking oversight, honestly, the oscillatron is capable of tearing the entire planet apart with the pull of a lever. Grotesque recognizes this immediately. Second of all, Professor X's mental powers have little to no effect on Grotesque. His radiated brain has some kind of barrier against telepathy. So, it's starting to look like the Earth is totally fucked. After a few panels of Xavier attempting to force his way past the subhuman's mental defenses, in which he keeps thinking harder, harder, in larger and larger text, Grotesque pulls the lever, and the oscillatron begins sending destructive vibrations down into the Earth's core. All seems lost. But then, the X-Men arrive! Angels brought these twin solar energy orbs that he uses to temporarily blind Grotesque, but it doesn't stop him for long. He picks up Beast and throws him directly into the winged X-Man. The subhuman then attempts to activate another one of the rock-solid smoke pellets, but Cyclops blasts it out of his hands. His optic powers have less effect on the subhuman himself, however, and Iceman's ice powers fail to stop the brute as well. But the fight does give Professor X and Marvel Girl time to try to deactivate the oscillatron before it reaches maximum intensity and rips the planet apart. The telepath and telekinetic team up and think really hard at the machine, attempting to shut it off. They make some headway, but the oscillatron still has enough power to destroy at least the eastern seaborne. Professor X knows he has to get closer to shut it off completely, and with the help of Jean's telekinesis, he approaches the now dangerously charged machine. Okay, the narration actually says he does so by using mechanized legs that are never mentioned anywhere else, so take your pick. A third canonical explanation will be retroactively made apparent much later. Grotesque notices what Xavier is up to and charges past the X-Men to stop him. The subhuman pushes the Professor aside and tries to increase the machine's power. In his blind anger, however, all he really manages to do is rip into the oscillatron with his meaty fists and the machine explodes, killing him. But the subhuman wasn't the only person to be caught in the fiery eruption. The X-Men rush over and see their mentor collapsed on the ground, barely holding on. Angel cradles their teacher as Xavier speaks his piece. He tells them that he'd wish to stop the subhuman before his time was up. Everything clicks into place for Cyclops. Before you're... Then that's why you had Jean hold us back. Why you'd been driving us so hard these past days. It's the only explanation. You knew that you were dying. Yes, Scott. Of an illness even I could not cure. But we stopped Grotesque. He didn't destroy the Earth. We won. We... <sighs> Professor Charles Xavier's face slackens, and his body relaxes, unmoving. He's gone, Angel gasps, holding his teacher tighter. Warren lifts the professor's body in his arms, as the rest of the X-Men look on in wordless sorrow. All right, I'm back here with Cameron, uh, still on these weird, this weird lawn. Yeah, I gotta stretch my legs. I'm losing blood circulation in the bottom of them. Uh, uh, all right, I actually see a, a placard. Uh, let's let's uh, get up and look at it. Oh, it says Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters. 
Whoa. What kind of school has a jet in the backyard? Yeah. It, uh, wait, wait, wait. This is Xavier as in, like, Charles is Xavier. Professor X. Oh. 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 Did he die? Yeah, several times. Uh... The first time was in issue number 42. I remember that one. Wait, wait, that was with um, the ugly guy. What was his name? Grotesque, the subhuman. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He was he was terrible looking. What was his name, though? His name was Grotesque. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's his name. I forgot. It's actually Grotesque. Classic, classic X-Men character, Grotesque, the subhuman. Why have I never heard of him before? I don't know if that was his given name or if he kind of gave that to himself. Maybe he's from the subworld, so everything's backwards, kind of like Bizarro. Yeah, we don't find a whole lot about the world he came from, except that it... Uh, I mean, they're all dead. He's the only one left. He's kind of like a Superman, honestly. You know what? That's a good point. Yeah. He's like a radiated, evil Superman. From the center of the Earth. That fights the X-Men. Yeah. <laughs> This guy's wild, though. I, I can't get over this guy. He's just ridiculous and so over the top. This, this is, So eventually X-Men kind of gets like this, just kind of looking at summaries of the issues and reading reading a bunch of them, where they're not even fighting other mutants anymore. They're just fighting all this weird sci-fi stuff like Grotesque the Subhuman. Here's a guy in a costume. Ah, we'll figure it out later. Yeah, yeah. So the, the plot is... This seems to happen a lot with with these issues where characters die, but the plot, there's not much to the plot, and it's not very impactful. They just kind of meet this guy, and he wants to destroy the world, and they have to stop him, and Xavier goes to... I actually don't know what his plan was. Did, Did you figure that out? I think he's trying to lure the bad guy into a trap, but the trap is a doomsday device so the bad guy takes over the doomsday device and tries to kill everybody and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense no if the trap is to lure him why is he luring him to a device that can destroy the planet the massive earthquake machine that doesn't seem right yeah what who came up with this so I, i my my theory is that the artist drew out they did the marvel style which is where the artist draws the story and then the scripter goes in and kind of fills in all the dialogue so my theory is that the, the artist drew this story intending completely different thing. And the scripter had no idea what was going on and was just like, oh, yeah, Professor X must have been luring him to this trap. And then he kind of goes a few p- more pages in and realizes, oh, wait, no, he's actually using this device to try to destroy the world. Uh, so I guess the device that Professor X lured him to can destroy the world. And, and you know, I, I think it's one of those, honestly. Mm, mm. It does feel like there should be a little bit more of an explanation on whose character is. Like, maybe there's an issue right before here where Grotesque breaks out of the underworld and starts seeking revenge and gives you that. But not in this issue, anyway. It, it, the way that they kind of slap you with Xavier dying in the end, uh, spoiler alert... Yeah, I don't know what you came here for if you didn't know what was going to happen, but <laughs> it, it did feel like it left you hanging. Like, there's a lot more to explain. We're just not going to do it here. Yeah, I did read the issue before this, and it's not... It doesn't tell you a whole lot. They're, the X-Men are all just hanging out in their civilian clothes, and then Grotesque shows up and starts destroying a subway train, and that's basically what you get. But I understand that wanting to tell the story that comes after... You know, the X-Men without their uh, their leader 
without their parental figure all of a sudden, that's a compelling story. And I think pulling him out swiftly creates a little bit of intrigue. No, I agree with that. I think it was a good move to take Xavier out and let the students kind of come in to their own as these strange superheroes and learn how to navigate the world themselves without this mentor figure. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it was a couple of years before they brought him back. Yeah. No, yeah. It, 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 he was gone for, I think, like two years. Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's just, it's just weird that it's grotesque the subhuman to do it, you know? Yeah. But Somebody I don't, I don't recall making any other impact on the X-Men at any other time. Yeah. He, he, he literally appeared in the issue before this, and he dies in this issue along with Xavier. And I think he actually does show up at some point again. So maybe one day I could do a grotesque a subhuman episode. We'll, we'll see. He, but, he does technically die and come back, so you could fit him in. Yeah, I, I, I could fit him in. He, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how many... We'll, we'll, we'll have to see. The show's probably going to be on for a few years before I get to a grotesque subhuman episode. He's going to put him we'll way down on the list there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not, he's not priority number one for sure. But yeah, their costumes are different by now. Did you like that? Actually, I do. They're starting to change. They're getting a little more form-fitting so the artist can show off different motions with a bit more clarity and, and pizzazz and punch. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I like that they get away from the matching uniforms because, like, like I was saying, it's kind of like they're this weird paramilitary organization. And now they're more superheroes. They all have their individual color scheme, so they're they're a bit different that way now. I do want to say this last panel here where Angel is holding Xavier and everyone is kind of walking behind them out of the the rubble. That's a really good image. And I think it, it strikes a bit more emotion than if we were to compare it to some of the images of Superman lying in the streets of Metropolis from the last issue where everyone's just shouting out, around him in, in pain. No, Superman! You know, here they're they're carrying their former leader you know, home. They're they're bringing him home. No, I agree. Don Heck did a did a good job on on this page cuz you can really see so yeah, Angel's carrying him in his arm and then you if you look at all the faces, I mean, you don't even see Jean's face because her hands are in her eyes and then Cyclops is just even though you don't see, you can't see his eyes because of the visor, you can just tell with his bottom half. He's got know? a good grimace on his face. The, yeah, he's going through some shit. Everyone else is looking down. Yeah, everybody's downcast and just, yeah, it's a good it's a good last page. I did appreciate how the comic didn't browbeat you with the idea that Professor X is going to die. Yes, it's on the cover, yes, but I completely forgot that that was going to happen all the way until the end when it finally happened. So... You know, props for that. No, yeah, you're right. I mean, they don't really foreshadow it or anything besides the cover. Like, the cover just beats you on the face, right? And says, guess what's happening in this issue? <laughs> and this is actually where the name of my uh, podcast comes from. It says, not a hoax, not a dream, not an imaginary tale. This is for real, the death of Professor X. Uh, I don't know if this is the first time they use that language in a comic. Not a hoax, not a dream. It's just something comics said back then, but this is definitely one of the most famous covers that has it on it. But after that, yeah, it's not foreshadowed or anything in the comic. If they had picked a different cover, you would have no idea that the end would have turned out the way it did. Well, I was surprised. And I was even more surprised when he came back. Yeah. Yeah. 
That was fun. You are familiar with the thought experiment the ship of Theseus in the field of identity metaphysics? Naturally. The ship of Theseus is an artifact in a museum. Over time, its planks of wood rot and are replaced with new planks. When no original plank remains, is it still the ship of Theseus? Secondly, if those removed planks are restored and reassembled free of the rot, is that the ship of Theseus? Neither is the true ship. Both are the true ship. Well, then we are agreed. Roy Thomas's original intent is for Professor X to stay dead, and it's an idea that editor Stanley wholly supports. Xavier's death gives the X-Men room to breathe and find their footing without a mentor. The series goes on. New part-time cast members are introduced to the book. First, there's Lorna Dane, later named Polaris, a mutant with green hair and magnetic powers. Then, Scott Summers' brother, Alex, makes his first appearance. He has the ability to absorb ambient cosmic energy and direct it into powerful blasts. He takes on the name Havoc. The comics reach new artistic heights when all-star Neil Adams starts drawing. But even his presence isn't enough to halt the book's soft cancellation, and upon issue number 67, X-Men would only be reprinted stories for nearly 30 issues. The book would go out with a bang, though, not a whimper. The penultimate issue is... X-Men, number 65. Writer, Dennis O'Neill. Artist, Neil Adams. Inker, Tom Palmer. Letterer, Gene Izzo. The X-Men, in their civilian clothes, have just arrived back at the mansion, where Havoc and Polaris have been impatiently waiting for them. Polaris tells them to hurry the fuck up, but the X-Men are not happy to be rushed. They've been through a lot lately, battling Magneto and the Mutates in the Savage Land and then fighting Sunfire in the city. Polaris uses her powers to rip a street lamp out of the ground and try to herd the X-Men into the mansion. Beast bends it in half, and then Havoc powers up and yells at them to stop being children and come inside for the exposition dump already. The X-Men say fine, fine. They go inside, suit up, think about mortality, relationships, and stuff, and meet in the computer room, where Havoc has prepared a PowerPoint presentation about the impending alien invasion threatening planet Earth. The invaders are named the Xanox. They are a race whose entire culture is dedicated to conquering and enslaving every other people they encounter. A thousand years ago, the Xanox created a device called the Gravity Transformer Drive, capable of transporting their entire planet throughout the universe. Right now, they're on their way to us, and when the Xanox world gets close enough, apocalyptic tidal waves and earthquakes will erupt across the Earth. Just last night, a Xanox craft landed at the South Magnetic Pole in order to serve as a homing beacon for the mother planet. Well, shit, Havoc, that's a lot to take in. The X-Men ask him if he has any proof, which pisses him off. Yes, it's true, but don't worry, there's a plan. Angel tells him he's too stupid to come up with a plan, and Havoc agrees. He didn't think of it. Only one man could formulate the master plan they need. Cyclops notices that Jean has suddenly started to cry. I understand now, she says. I can stop. Pretending. All these past months. It's been so hard. From behind Havoc, a man in a wheelchair slowly rolls out of the shadows. The X-Men are astonished to see that it's their mentor and teacher, Charles Xavier, Professor X. Greetings, X-Men. I'm delighted to be with you again. Jean reveals that she knew he was alive, but was sworn to secrecy. Charles explains the whole account of how and why he was secretly alive this entire time. Months ago, he learned of the Xanox invasion while telepathically scanning the stars. Right as he did so, the Changeling showed up, 
explaining that he had only six months to live and would like a way to redeem himself before he died. Funny you mention it. Do you want to pretend you're me for a while? I can lend you some of my telepathic powers to really sell it. While you do that, I'm going to go prepare a counterattack against this alien race who's on their way here. And so, Changeling was the one who died at the hands of Grotesque the Subhuman, not Xavier. Recap over with, Professor X tells his students they have to spend the next few hours in training. Once their crash course alien invasion study sesh is over, they head to the South Pole on a rocket to take on the Xenox. Only Polaris stays behind with the Professor. The rest of the X-Men break into the Xenox homing ship, taking on the alien troops stationed there. Meanwhile, Professor X brings his plan into action. He reaches his mind out to all of Earth and its citizens, seeking out the will, compassion, and courage of all who possess goodwill in their hearts. He joins their spirits together, and asks Polaris to use her powers to project the energy to the X-Men. Marvel Girl receives the pure telepathic power and directs it to Havoc, who boosts it and transmits it into Cyclops' skull. Cyclops channels the energy into his optic blast and through the ship's homing beacon aims it directly at the incoming Xenox planet. Iceman uses his temperature powers to prevent Cyclops from overheating, while Angel and Beast hold the remaining forces on the ship at bay. Somewhere far out in our solar system, the beam finds its target, and the Xenox are bombarded with images and thoughts completely anathema to them. Thoughts of moral determination, of mercy and sympathy, and an eagerness for freedom. All of a sudden, they begin to think what to them is the unthinkable. They feel a loathing for the evils they've committed, a desire to right the wrongs they've perpetuated all these countless years. Feeling their imperialistic need to conquer being diluted, the Xenox commanders order that the planet be turned around immediately. They do something the Xenox have never done, and admit defeat. The Xenox flee the solar system, never to be seen again. At least as far as I know. Charles Xavier releases his hold on the minds of all the good souls on Earth, and falls to the ground, collapsed out of his wheelchair. He... he saved a world, Polaris exclaims. Perhaps a universe. Has it cost him? His life? The X-Men escape on their rocket just as a Xenox homing ship blows up. At first, they wonder why the aliens didn't rejoin their companions on the homeworld. But then they understand. The psychic projections of human compassion entering their minds. They could no longer live with the knowledge of what they could be, compared to what they are. Next, the Hulk. Yeah, in issue number 66, the last issue before the series goes to reprints, and what could have been the last new X-Men story ever, they fight the Hulk. They do so so they can ask Bruce Banner to help save Xavier's life. Everything works out, and Charles is alive and well for years to come, until he dies again. But he always comes back, too. A lot of episode potential for this guy. Are you a parent who can't control their children? Are they doing weird shit you can't explain? Are they changing the weather patterns in the second-story apartment? Have you or a loved one recently been orphaned in a freak psionic outburst? Don't worry! There's help! At Xavier Institute for Troubled Youths and Child Soldiers, we can give you the love you need. Call 1-800-555-X-MEN. Actually, don't call us. We'll call you. All right, and issue number 65, Professor X Returns. Did you expect that? Well, it's not on the cover, so 
I didn't. Right. He just kind of pops in there in the middle. It was completely unexpected. Yeah, these aliens kind of come out of nowhere in this issue. And I'm starting to sense a pattern where if they want something really important to happen with the characters, they do it behind some nobody characters that are the villains for that issue. Right. It's like a MacGuffin, I guess. So grotesque, the subhuman was the MacGuffin to tell the story of the mentor dying and the students having to pick up after the fact. Oh, that makes sense. And this MacGuffin is a big Pluto-sized planet. Exactly. Although, now that we know a little better, if it's Pluto-sized, it's not a planet. True. This is true. Maybe that's why these aliens are so angry. Yeah. What's nice about this issue is it's drawn by Neil Adams. This run of issues drawn by Neil Adams is pretty nice, actually. Yeah, there's a little bit more detail in the poses of the models and the way that the characters are standing and articulating. It feels a little more lifelike. The story's not necessarily any more advanced, but it seems like it is because Neil Adams just draws such expression on all of their faces and the musculature in in their bodies. It just looks more dynamic. The backgrounds are a little more fleshed out, too. There's more detail in the grass, in the buildings. It feels like you're actually looking in a room rather than just a, a blob behind the character. And the plot itself is, as we were alluding to, a little goofy, but I think they take it into a pretty neat place where Professor X has to basically connect with every living person on Earth. Yeah, it's like Professor X threw a spirit bomb at them. This is kind of a proto-spirit bomb, right? Professor X did it first before Goku. We got to give it to him. (laughs) I do like the suit-up scene where you've got the panels of each of the X-Men characters kind of getting into their costumes and thinking to themselves, prepping themselves for the battle at hand. I agree. That's such a very X-Men thing, too. Just characters in these weird situations but having these kind of deep thoughts about relationships and mortality and what it all means yeah as a matter of fact angel has a really interesting line where he's thinking to himself as he's staring at his costume saying every time i put on these duds i've got to wonder if i'll be buried in them that's a little bit of a powerful moment i think that encapsulates what's going on in this team's head and humanizes them it it brings them down to our scale and says look they don't know what's going to happen at the end of the day either and they're scared yeah and it's really funny that you get all of these thoughts and questioning right before their mentor returns from the grave right because their xavier dies and and then afterwards they have to learn how to become heroes and people in their own right without their mentor and Maybe Angel would have just stopped being an X-Men if Xavier didn't return. It makes you wonder. I think Angel's always been that character that saw himself as more human than mutant. Yeah. So his questioning his place on the team may really come from that. Yeah, and that kind of goes with his background, too. You know, it comes from wealth and privilege. What did you think of the reasoning behind Professor X's return? I thought it was a cool reveal, but the reasoning felt a little bit lame. I find it interesting that Xavier's reaction was, yeah, I'll use you as a body double to fake my own death instead of, let me try to help save you. It it is interesting, right? Yeah. That's kind of of Professor X, you know? Like, overall, you you definitely can argue that he... I mean, in this issue, he saves a planet, right? So you, you can't take that away from him. So he's doing good things. That's true. But he... 
sometimes has very questionable methods, for sure. But now he's back, and everybody just kind of says, okay? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on. You know, this this planet is heading towards Earth. There's going to be earthquakes and tidal waves, so they, they have to all come together. It, it, it is we need fun. a montage training scene. Exactly. It, it's it's kind of ridiculous that as soon as Professor X returns, pretty much the first thing he does is say, all right, time to put you through training again. But that's the first thing we saw him do in issue one. So, you know what? That's actually more on his character than the you know, worrying about how he's treating the non-X-Men characters who want a little bit of redemption in the previous panel. This, this entire page is 100% Professor X. Yeah. He's telling Bobby, look, you got to get colder, man. He's telling Cyclops, you got to get that little beam hotter and smaller, man. He's telling <laughs> Beast, you got to get flippier, dude. And he's telling Jean Grey, listen, I'm in your brain. You got to put that shit everywhere. Yeah. Some of that makes sense for what they're going to do, but some of it doesn't. Like, why does why does Cyclops have to shoot a beam through this narrow little hole? Oh, that makes sense. He's just focusing. It's just getting it... it the, so the, the more precise the beam, there's a lot more energy going into a smaller point, which makes it more harmful to that point. Instead of being spread out over a large area, because remember, it's not heat beams, it's a kinetic blast. No, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like the difference between... Uh, in martial arts, you've got... The regular punch, and then you've got a spear fist. Sure. And the idea is that you deal more damage with a with a smaller point of impact. No, I get that, but but if you if you go to sort of the culmination of his plan and what he wants them all to actually do. Oh, you're right. He doesn't use it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What he's asking all. Cyclops to do is actually channel all this energy in this big beam towards the mm. Zanox planet that's coming towards them. So, I think it's just the focusing. Yeah, you, maybe. you know, focusing on it while you're you've got all this power that's trying to rush out. You, you got to focus it in this little beam helps him focus more power from the people tapping his shoulders into the beam that he has to shoot. OK, fair enough. You, you get a no prize. Yeah. I mean, I guess that scene where they all have a part. It wasn't just Professor X linking minds with everybody on Earth and then just shooting this beam himself, which they could have done. Mm-hmm. They could have just wrote mm-hmm. it that way. But instead, he in the story, they involve all of the X-Men so that it's this elaborate kind of chain reaction thing where Polaris is, is amplifying the energy and then Marvel Girl's picking it up and then Havoc is channeling it into Cyclops, who is being like cooled down by Iceman. I guess that's pretty cool. What's interesting to me, though, do you think the return to Professor X kind of undoes the good that his original departure had on the team and what i mean is you know the the team was learning how to get along without him and then all of a sudden he's back and they're just listening to him all over again to win the day and and yeah it works but how is that for their character development yeah i i kind of agree that it it's not useful to bring him back and that it was a, a good story move to have them come into their own as characters I got to wonder whether he would have come back had the series not been kind of on its last legs at this point. Well, I don't have a problem with bringing him back. I just think maybe introduce him in a different role. Yeah. Than the mentor role. Yeah. Because these these people don't need mentors anymore. And that was sort of where it was branching out. But now we're just bringing it back in order to retell the original story again to, to push paper. Yeah. No, 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 I agree. And and that's kind of the way uh, Chris Claremont will, will take it years later is Professor X is still around, but he takes that core group.
group of X-Men kind of away from him. So they're no longer connected. Mm. There's a new team of mutants called the New Mutants and Professor X is kind of their mentor for a bit. And that's a different book. But the X-Men aren't really... At one point, Xavier thinks they're all dead. And, and so they're not even in communication. So eventually they figure out how to do that. Since Xavier, they apparently can't just kill him. They'll, they'll try and he'll just come back. Eventually they'll figure out different ways of making it so that... He's around, but he's not basically just micromanaging them either. I mean, it's a it's a cool story. Everybody liked Professor X, so bringing him back, you know, that's what the fans want to see. Give it to him. Yeah, and and I think it is kind of that a last hurrah kind of thing because at, at this point, I think they they knew that the the book was kind of going out. Yeah, got to get the band back together for one more tour. Yeah, and then the issue after this, they fight the Hulk, and then and then it's it for like thirty issues until giant size x-men number one where you get nightcrawler storm wolverine joins the team colossus all oh, right all those guys yeah then it really gets good that's the x-men i remember from from when i was a kid yeah x-men honestly isn't good before that <laughs> this the, like the, like this issue this issue is pretty good uh like i like this stuff with neil adams right this particular issue i, I did enjoy it was kind of cool but Overall, not 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 a great comic. E- even you know, even Stanley and, and Jack Kirby, God bless them, they're they're legends. But but you know, if you compare this to what they're doing on like Fantastic Four at the same time, like X Men's, just not really. They don't really know. They don't have a feel for what the comic's supposed to be. They kind of just like, hey, wouldn't it be wacky if these superheroes were just born with their powers and they were in a school and, and they just throw a lot of bunch of ideas together? But it doesn't always make a whole lot of doesn't sense. Doesn't feel as cohesive. Yeah, exactly. And then eventually, you know, people really, you know, Chris Claremont writes it for 17 years and really defines a lot of characters and gives the comic a direction and and feeds a lot of thematic matter into the stories. And then that that allows it to really succeed and become forced to be reckoned with in pop culture. You know, the animated series comes out in the 90s and yeah, it takes off from there. I think that Professor X as a character is much more compelling nowadays than when he was originally in the comics like we're seeing here um, but that comes with time and reflection on where he was so you know without this we wouldn't have all the, the great material that we have today to to really enjoy yeah for sure all right and that's gonna wrap things up for this episode of not a hoax not a dream thanks for listening and thanks again to returning guest cameron guile He's a talented voice actor. He's got a website, CameronGuile.com, and you can find him under his name on Twitter. If you would like to help the show, you can write a review and give us a good rating wherever you listen to this. If you listened on the Anchor website, you can click on one of the show links to rate the show there. Next week, we'll have another returning guest when Jimmy White and I discuss the coffee to Professor X's tea, Magneto, Master of Magnetism. Coffee and tea have a complicated relationship where they're both soulmates and bitter enemies, right? Sure. Hey, it looks like somebody's home. Yeah, on a motorcycle. Does he have knives for hands? Is he wearing a cat suit? What is yellow and black? Oh, he looks kind of angry. I think he spotted us. We got to get out of here. Come on, let's go. All right, run, run.
just walking sounds. <laughs> walking around. All right. Dude, just walking over here. <laughs> Insert jet noise here. <laughs>